The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Prior to the imposition of the national security law, there was already a creeping erosion of freedom of the press for quite a few years, even before the NSL. The other major print newspapers would routinely engage in self-censorship. Some of them were owned by tycoons with close business or patronage ties to Beijing. Uh, Some of them, we know for a fact, uh, spiked certain op-ed pieces. that were considered particularly critical of the Hong Kong or Beijing governments. But in terms of raids conducted purportedly under the national security law, this isn't even the first set of raids. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 25th, 2021. The Apple Daily newspaper in Hong Kong has shut down under pressure from the Chinese and Hong Kong governments. It's the latest political repression in Hong Kong that shows no sign of easing up. Alvin Chung is a postdoctoral fellow at McGill University and a non-resident affiliated scholar at NYU's U.S. Asia Law Institute. He joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about the Apple Daily case, the other cases like it, the implementation of Hong Kong's new national security law, and what it all means for the Hong Kong constitutional order. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 25th, Alvin Chung on Apple Daily. So Alvin, get us started. What is Apple and Why did it shut down? The Apple Daily was, and it is strange using using the word was instead of is, a tabloid newspaper, uh, one of a shrinking number of print newspapers in Hong Kong. And for the last several years, it had been the only paper in Hong Kong that had not succumbed to some form of political capture or self-censorship in the face of encroachment by Beijing. What happened over the last couple of days was that the paper was forced to close after its offices were raided by the 
National Security Police, allegedly over a number of what appear to be op-eds, which were published in some cases before the national security law entered into force, calling for sanctions against Hong Kong officials. And following that, the assets of various companies involved in publishing the Apple Daily were frozen. And the paper was, as you might imagine, forced out of business. The latest on that front, as far as I'm aware, is that a an op-ed columnist has been arrested, again, allegedly for committing a national security law-related offence. And the Apple Daily's landlords have started re-entry proceedings. Now, I should add that the landlord in question is a government-owned corporation. And when you say re-entry proceedings, what do you mean by that? So what... Hong Kong Science and Technology Parks Corporation, the landlord, alleged is that Apple Daily had breached the terms of its lease and therefore it, as the landlord, was entitled to take immediate possession of the land. I see. So it's basically an eviction. Yes. And so should we assume at this point that Apple Daily is finished or or is this a pressure tactic that if it agrees to... Uh, not publish certain things, it'll be allowed to reform. Is it gone at this point? I would assume that the Apple Daily, at least in Hong Kong, is finished. And there is still an Apple Daily in Taiwan. There were some discussions earlier about selling it. But uh, as as I understand it, that idea was quickly abandoned. But yes, certainly in Hong Kong, there are no more opposition newspapers, and I do not expect that the Apple Daily will be allowed to reform in in any guise whatsoever. So this is a remarkable change, because it wasn't that long ago that the debate in Hong Kong was pretty robust. How many opposition newspapers uh, were there, and how recently has this crackdown produced, you know, this kind of result? Well, prior to the imposition of the national security law, there was already a creeping erosion of freedom of the press for quite a few years, even before the NSL. The other major print newspapers would routinely engage in self-censorship. Some of them were owned by tycoons with close business or patronage ties to Beijing. Uh, Some of them, we know for a fact, uh, spiked certain op-ed pieces um, that were considered particularly critical of the Hong Kong or Beijing governments. But in terms of raids conducted purportedly under the national security law, this isn't even the first set of raids. There, there, was a previous, there was a previous raid on, if I remember correctly, Nikkei in relation to pro-democracy ads that were placed with them. And again, if memory serves, the, that was again in relation to events that occurred before the NSL was imposed. So there is there is certainly a difference in terms of the crackdown on the press, but I, I would argue that it is 
a matter of degree rather than of kind. Mm-hmm. So, so how long ago do you have to go back before you say, okay, well, Hong Kong is a kind of oasis of pretty free speech and has a fairly vibrant press. I mean, that was true significantly after Chinese sovereignty was reestablished, right? To a large extent, that has been true. There's been growing pressure on newspapers and journalists since the end of the pro-democracy umbrella movement at the end of 2014. That was when the then chief executive, C.Y. Leung, started drumming up this boogeyman of Hong Kong independence. And that was when he started specifically targeting, well, in the, in the first instance, a, an undergraduate publication. But certainly since then, there's been a growing trend, not only of self-censorship within the press, but growing police obstruction of journalists and governmental hostility to journalism more broadly. And how was it that Apple Daily was able to buck this trend? Was it just not important enough for the government to care much about it? Was there, did it have some kind of protexia? Why, why was it until this week largely left alone? Well, the... Apple Daily is unique in that its founder, Jimmy Lai, had very particular and strongly held views. And specifically, he was and still is a staunch supporter of the pro-democracy camp in Hong Kong, as broadly understood. And as long as Jimmy Lai was in charge, it was exceedingly unlikely that there would be significant editorial changes at the Apple Daily. But now, of course, Jimmy Lai is in prison. And the government evidently thought the time was right to finish what they'd started by getting rid of Jimmy Lai. And when and why was Jimmy Lai arrested? Jimmy Lai was arrested in August of 2020 following a police raid and the Apple Daily newsroom. This all this all sounds very familiar. And he was sentenced in respect of his participation in the 2019 demonstrations against the rendition bill that was at that time considered a, a severe threat to Hong Kong's legal and constitutional order. And he was sentenced in respect of two of these protests in 2019 to a total of 14 months in prison. And and the sentencing was was when? The sentencing happened in mid-April of this year. I see. So it's a relatively, so they arrest him, they convict him, they sentence him to 14 months, and then relatively shortly thereafter, they uh, destroy the newspaper. Correct. It reminds me a lot of, you know, Khodorkovsky in, in Russia, where, you know, you arrest somebody and then basically seize their business. Yes, absolutely. And is the goal here 
principally to shut up Apple daily or is the goal to send a message to others or both? I think it is both. The strategy of the Hong Kong and Beijing governments now under the NSL is essentially to make a desert and call it peace. Originally, when you know, prior to the NSL being imposed, and even in the early days of the NSL, of course, the defenders of that particular law were keen to assure people that it would only affect a small minority of people. Well, that has quite clearly not been the case. There have been concerted efforts to target journalists, not only at the Apple Daily, but at, at other outlets as well, in particular at Radio Television Hong Kong, the public service broadcaster. And within the academic field, uh, there's also been, I would, I would suggest, a very visible chilling effect. When Professor Carol Peterson at Hawaii and I co-authored an article on threats to academic freedom in Hong Kong in about 2016. Uh, there were already a number of Hong Kong-based academics who would not speak to us on the record uh, for fear of political retaliation. Now, of course, they face the prospect of potentially life in prison. So it's even more unlikely that they'll talk to anybody about anything that could remotely be construed as a national security threat. And under the NSL, that encompasses pretty much anything. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So what have the patterns of arrests and prosecutions under the NSL looked like? At the time that it was passed, you told me it's so vague, it could cover anything. And as you rightly note, people who were complacent about it said, hey, it's just going to, it's not going to be used with respect to journalism, just with respect to really sort of, you know, anti-state activity. I'm curious how much of its bark has been in the chilling effect department and how much of its Bark has been in, you know, actually prosecuting people. In one sense, it's a bit too early to say. Uh, what we do know is that the first NSL related trial uh, started, I think, yesterday. That was in relation to Tong Yingit, who rode on a motorcycle carrying a 
pro-independence flag towards several police officers. So that is at least on the face of it, more closely resembling something that would be broadly understood as perhaps a public order offense. Because he was arguably attacking police officers with a motorcycle. Yes. But he is now going to be subject to a 15-day trial before a carefully hand-picked panel of national security judges. As for other arrests, the most notable of these, other than the recent Apple Daily Abed author, was the arrest of 47 pro-democracy politicians for the heinous offense of organizing a round of primary elections for the pro-democracy camp before the legislative elections that were to be held in a few months' time in in late 2020, until those were pushed back ostensibly due to the pandemic. So these are purely political offenses with no public order element to them. Absolutely. So you recently wrote a book review in which you faulted gently, but I think it's fair to say faulted, the two books under review for describing the Hong Kong legal and constitutional order from the world before the national security law. Now, it's obviously not the fault of the writers when they wrote their books, but I think your point was that this is very out of date, though not that old, and that the world has changed very substantially. Uh, Is it your sense in general that people still react to Hong Kong as a kind of place with a constitutional order when it really isn't anymore? I would say that's right, yes. That, you know, apart from the usual milk toast expressions of concern, there really hasn't been any effort in quote-unquote mainstream China analysis insofar as such a thing exists to grapple with the fact that Hong Kong's legal and constitutional orders evaporated overnight. And from your point of view, what would be the consequences of such a grappling? There would have to be a ground-up revisiting of pretty much every prior assumption that's been made in terms of dealings with Hong Kong, in particular whether it's still meaningfully distinguishable from dealings with mainland China. And there's been some rhetoric about that. There have been some discussions of forming some unspecified actions at an unspecified point in time. But, you know, nothing on the order of, you know, completely suspending, well, a few countries have suspended their rendition agreements with Hong Kong now. But this might also encompass things like, can academic exchanges still be held on any meaningful basis? Can the safety of, you know, certain countries' nationals be guaranteed 
if they travel to Hong Kong. Those are now all questions that people have to ask themselves. So I'm curious for your answers to those questions. Is there a, I mean, there's obviously in some limited sense, still a meaningful difference between Hong Kong and Southern China. There are, there's a different civil administration, right? There's a different, different set of laws governing a whole bunch of things, but you know, how deep is that at this point? Is it, is it just residual? Is it, I mean, obviously Hong Kong people feel differently from, from mainland Chinese. How meaningful is that difference at this point? There's difference insofar as that difference is useful to Beijing, right? From Beijing's perspective, the ideal end goal for Hong Kong is to make Hong Kong essentially a Potemkin city with a Potemkin legal system. So it has, you know, it has all the trappings of an ordinary common law legal system from an ordinary common law jurisdiction. But in reality, it functions very differently. And more importantly, it can be displaced at any time simply by assigning certain, quote unquote, sensitive cases to mainland courts. And I suspect that you know, this is precisely what Beijing is attempting to accomplish. Um, in fact, just yesterday in the Financial Times, there was a story about how pro-Beijing legislators, are there any other kind these days, objected to the appointment of a senior judge to the Court of Final Appeal on the basis that she was married to the former Chief Justice, who'd been particularly vocal in defending the independence of the judiciary from Beijing's encroachment. So my my sense is that we're already not that far removed from the Potemkin city. And as, in fact, as some of the authors point out in, in the books under review, there has already been a judicial retreat within Hong Kong for some time. So absolutely, there will be a difference in form as far as that benefits Beijing, but there will not necessarily be a difference in substantive outcomes. So I think we have not spoken since the change of administration in the United States, to what extent has the Biden administration articulated a policy with respect to Hong Kong? And to what extent, to whatever degree it has, is that policy different from the Trump administration's policy? I mean, to begin with, it seems like the Biden administration actually has a coherent China policy, which is clearly an improvement over what came before. And certainly the administration seems to be making all the right noises on Hong Kong. They're making the statements that one might reasonably expect them to make. But in terms of, you know, substantive things like sanctions against Hong Kong government officials or ways to ensure that in the event that, say, financial institutions are compelled to choose between complying with the national security law and complying with U.S. law, that they comply with U.S. law. 
I have to say, I, I've not seen that much movement on that front. And do you expect to? Is this the growing pangs of a new administration that it just kind of hasn't gotten around to articulating these things yet? Or is it the kind of thing where this is an administration that is more prone to human rights rhetoric than the Trump administration, so they're going to sound better, but they're not actually going to do very much? That's I really don't know. If you'd asked me before the start of the administration, I would I would have taken a decidedly cynical approach, uh, given the re-emergence of so many Obama-era State Department personnel. But I have been, I have to say, even, even the rhetoric, the, the mere existence of the rhetoric counts as a pleasant surprise. And that may be a reflection of how low my expectations are. But um, no, I I have to say, I I would reserve judgment on this, at least for the time being. What other countries have been constructively engaged? You're based in Canada. Uh, Have the Canadians, the Australians, the British been doing or saying anything useful? Or is it uh, largely a situation where people perceive that they don't have a lot of leverage and understand that the Chinese do have a lot of leverage? I think it's mostly the latter. There's a lot of performative hand-wringing. But really, the the window of opportunity closed at the very latest in 2014. And now the bills for that inaction are finally coming due. Canada in particular, I have, I have to say, has absolutely not covered itself in glory on this front. Uh, there, was a, there was a news piece in the Globe and Mail, which disclosed that consular, Canadian consular officials in Hong Kong were taking a distinctly dismissive attitude towards asylum claims from people who'd participated in demonstrations in Hong Kong. So given the way the government has conducted itself thus far, barring a, barring a change of government in, in upcoming elections, I, I really don't see much scope for optimism there. And what about the British? Boris Johnson had made some hardish line noises um, as the former colonial power. Uh, Have the British done anything useful? Not particularly, it would seem. And and to be fair, they have have more pressing concerns, largely of their own making. But um, certainly they... They have very little leverage, but nonetheless, they they do have more leverage than most, being the counterparty to the joint declaration. And they've been pretty reluctant to exercise that leverage, you know, even insofar as it exists. So one last question. Is there any reason for optimism anywhere on this score other than your your modest lack of a vote of no confidence in the Biden administration? Well, in an infinite universe, anything is possible, although I wouldn't necessarily put my money on it. But uh, certainly the 
PRC at present is going through quite a few of its own issues, uh, in particular with overly centralised rule. And so with any luck, there will be some portion of the Hong Kong that preceded the NSL that lasts just long enough to outlive the current leadership in Beijing. But um, apart from that, don't expect things to get better anytime soon, really. On that cheerful note, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Alvin Chung, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so tweet us, share us on all the socials, leave us a rating or review wherever you found us, buy our merch at the Lawfare Store. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.